This morning's Bible reading is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 14 verses 6 to 14. That's 1 Samuel chapter 14 verses 6 to 14. Jonathan said to his young armour-bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Do all that you have in mind, his armour-bearer said. Go ahead, I am with you, heart and soul. Jonathan said, Come then, we will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they were hiding in. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armour-bearer, Come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. So Jonathan said to his armour-bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Jonathan climbed up, using his hands and feet, with his armour-bearer right behind him. The Philistines fell before Jonathan, and his armour-bearer followed and killed behind him. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armour-bearer killed some twenty men in an area of about half an acre. May the Lord bless the reading of his word today. Morning, everyone. Let me extend my welcome to you as well. If you're visiting with us today, then welcome to our service. You find us returning to a series that we began a few months ago and we'll be staying in Samuel until our anniversary service or thereabouts towards the end of the term. Uh, There are Bible study books available, connect groups, life group material available for you. If you're in a life group, make sure you get a copy of that if that's the material you're studying and that's what we encourage you to do. If you're not in a life group and you might like to get into a group that meets for a short time, which is we call connect groups, then... You can fill in the little yellow form which you have in your bulletin or you can see Pastor David who was here this morning. He's the guy responsible for putting these things together and he'll put you in a connect group with somebody else. He does that sort of stuff, don't you? Usually quite well. And I haven't chatted with you about this, but if someone's not in a life group and not in a connect group, can they just get a Bible study booklet anyway and just use it for themselves? It's always much better to study their group and learn from each other. But if you're not in a group, and you can't find your way into a group, then pick up a copy of the material anyway because it's some very helpful uh, questions to help probe the meaning of the passage, so I commend that to you. A couple of announcements. Bevan Phil Walker, who are normally part of this congregation, they move between 8.30 service and this service. Well, Bevan Phil, they uh, go overseas tomorrow for about six, six and a half weeks, something like that. So we'll pray for them, and if you know who they are, then that's where they will be. Ray's here this morning. Um, last Wednesday, I got it wrong in the 8.30 service, I said Thursday, but last Wednesday, Sui May, uh, the lady whom we know and love, passed into the presence of the Lord Jesus, Wednesday afternoon. Her funeral is going to be this coming Tuesday here in the auditorium at 11 o'clock. So if you would like to come and to celebrate her life, give thanks to God for her life as well as to support Ray and Sean and 
other members of the family, three kings and so on, then we encourage and encourage you to come and to be supportive of them in that. Whereas some other folks are in hospital, other people have other issues going on in their life, that so we just need to commit them to the Lord as well and ourselves now as we come to look at this very difficult chapter. I read this chapter a lot this week. The first few times when I read it I went, so what? What has that got to do for us? So listen carefully this morning to see if the application I do bring is applicable to the text. And if you see something else, then come and share it with me too because I'd like to learn more about how to fight the Philistines. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege we have to be able to come together freely, to assemble in this place. We pray for our brothers and sisters in the Cantonese service, meeting the activity centre, and ask that you might bless them the reading, teaching and public worship so too for us Lord open to us now by your spirit speak to us enlighten us help us to move into a closer relationship with you into understanding this passage and its implication for us not just today but into the days of this week that you might transform us continue to transform us and that we might follow the Lord Jesus very closely passionately being wholeheartedly obedient to him. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus, uh, that this life is not the end. And we are grateful and rejoice that Swimei has entered into your presence because of the redemption you provide. We pray for Ray, Sean, Sweet King, for other members of the family, that they might have a sense of your presence, your peace, that you might comfort them, and that the hope we have in Jesus might sustain them through this time of grief and of loss. We pray Heavenly Father for Bev and for Phil as they travel overseas, keep them safe, give them opportunities even on holidays to have kingdom conversations, uh, to be your servants uh, in whatever context they happen to be in, to be looking for opportunities to talk about you. And we pray Lord for those in hospital those expecting medical results this week, those who have the pressure of work or a family and ask for your intervention in all of their lives. We ask for your will to be done, Lord, in them and in us. We ask all of these things in the wonderful name of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Um, you'll see from the screen that I have entitled well, this morning, but it's really last week, this week and next week a little bit. It's about Saul sacrificing his crown. Chapters 13, 14 and 15 sort of fit together. Saul in chapters 10, 11, 12 is presented reasonably positively as a commendable person to be the first king. The people said, we want a king to rule over us. We want a king just like the nation. And they get a king. They get a good guy, but he turns out to be a king just like the nation. And for the people of God, that's never good enough. We need a king who is better than the king who was like those kings over the nation. And sure enough, in the coming of David, we get a glimpse, but ultimately in the coming of the king of kings of the Lord Jesus, we do get the king who is a man after God's own heart, who serves God's purposes fully and faithfully. And that because of his obedience, we get redeemed. We become part of his new kingdom of what God is doing in the world. And we're still involved in that mission, that task. Now we're looking back, and in this story we are going to see King Saul and the reasons why he failed um, in his kingship. 
Last week we saw that he did three things. Next slide. That he delayed his obedience. That when God appointed him to be king, he was given clear instructions. Number one problem. They had lots of issues and lots of nations around them. Number one problem. The Philistines were actually in the land and they weren't supposed to be. It was Israel's land and the Philistines were to be removed from it. So first on the agenda for Saul was to uh, gather the people together to meet at this place called Gilgal to wait for Samuel to come and then he would receive God's instructions of what God would do miraculously through him and the people of Israel to achieve God's purposes. But Sam, uh, Saul blew it. He delayed obedience. He didn't get on with the job. He seems to have gone back farming and then waited and then eventually in chapter 13 he gathers an army together. He goes to Gilgal. Time has since passed a little bit delayed obedience and then even when he is there at Gilgal waiting he was told to wait seven days well he waits into the seventh day he was told to wait for Samuel to come and just before Samuel came he took matters into his own hands he was disobedient to God's very clear instruction and because he did that because he was disobedient he told that twice in chapter 13 uh, the results the consequences were drastic for him for his family they would no longer be the royal family though his son and sons would no longer rule as kings which they would have done supposedly because Saul devalued the word of God didn't obey it exactly as God required and then when he got caught out Samuel does turn up in the midst of Saul uh, offering a sacrifice and, what have you done and he comes up with all sorts of excuses he rationalises his behaviour he doesn't repent, he doesn't admit it, he doesn't say I got it wrong, he doesn't ask for forgiveness he fails at that point well in this chapter we're going to read more about Saul's failure the author of Samuel likes often to take two characters and to put them side by side and almost to contrast them started the book that day you hear about Eli and then you're going to hear about Samuel and he contrasts them so here in this chapter you're going to read about Saul's son Jonathan contrasted with Saul and Jonathan does some strange things but it's almost like that's commended to us and Saul is inactive and does some foolish things and it's a warning to us God did not give Saul to fail to the people of Israel Saul was a fallen, flawed creature just like all of us God's got to work with fallen, flawed people he's got to work with imperfect people, doesn't he? ever since Adam and Eve there's only been one who was imperfect who was perfect and that's the Lord Jesus Everybody else is flawed. God's got to work with broken, flawed people. But there are standards, there are ways that God will work with us and that he requires us how we should behave and certainly how we should respond. Well, here is Saul, fallen, flawed, but who makes some terrible decisions in this chapter. In many ways, it's an awful chapter, a sad chapter. Um, so these two guys are going to be contrasted for us. Right at the beginning, chapter 14, got your Bible, you might want to have it open, we're going to read a fair bit of it this morning. <clears throat> it says in verse 1, One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to his young armour-bearer, Come on, let's go over to the Philistine outpost on the other side. Israel, uh, Jonathan had done it before back in 13, he'd gone up and wiped out an outpost, I think at the instigation of Saul, probably initiated, Saul certainly got the credit for it. Jonathan now... The response to that, Saul blows the trumpet, assembles the militia and the army that he had and the Philistines respond to that. They overwhelmingly outnumber the Israelites. Israel has about 3,000 in the army, maybe several other thousand in the militia coming to join them, whatever. 
um, the Philistines have at least 30,000 and maybe more than that. Hundreds of thousands, maybe. Not sure of the exact number. But it's overwhelming against them. When Israel sees that, they are demoralised. Their eyes are on circumstances, not on God. Not on what God wants to do. Um, They didn't realise, like Jonathan does in this chapter, that nothing can hinder the Lord. He can save by many or he can save by few. What did uh, John Knox used to say? That one with God is always a majority. You have God on your side. You're bound to be successful in achieving God's will, whatever his will happens to do. So here are the Israelites, uh, outnumbered and now demoralised, and they're starting to melt, the desert. They're running and hiding in caves, and we read in this chapter even some of them had gone over previously to the enemy, to the Philistines. Now, either they were captured, and so they're prisoners now wearing Philistine uniforms, or they did, excuse me, they deserted. They thought, no, this is no good, I'm going to go on the winning side. This guy's over there. Some of them even left the country, they went across the Jordan to Gilead and Gad, that's what we did last week. Here are these two numbers, uh, two armies standing off against each other. Israel is demoralised. The Philistines are having their own way. They are unbelievers in the land of Israel, dishonouring the God of Israel, and nobody's doing anything. Well, the text doesn't say it, but I guess my imagination says, I think Jonathan's observing all of this. And Jonathan puts two and two together, and he says, this can't go on. I'm going to go fight another Philistine outpost. And so he does. Uh, We read in this, what I read to you before in verse 2, he says, come on, let's go. And so off they go. Jonathan, active, initiating, doing something, not directed by God specifically. God didn't tap him on his shoulder and say, I want you to do this. It's more, he was observing what was going on around him. And in observing these circumstances, sort of figured, on the basis of God's revelation, of what God had said before, you're going into the promised land, it's your land, remove all of the uh, foreign nations from among it. He drew a conclusion from that as saying, that's still God's will. And God does not want the Philistines in this land. That's our job to get rid of them. So he took the initiative, took action. Saul, by contrast, sitting under a pomegranate tree, contemplating, reflecting, perhaps waiting. In this chapter you will find Saul doing a lot of religious things, at least outwardly religious. You'll find him in that mode of waiting, seeking God. But it would appear that as you read through and analyse the chapter a bit, it's, it's an outward act, not a heartfelt desire. He's performing rather than being transformed in being uh, fully passionate to do what God's will was in his life. He was a little bit egocentric. We'll come to some of that. Let's go to Jonathan. There are some things about him in these verses that we had read to us that we are to learn from. Firstly, he was a man who had faith in God, who believed God, and who at this point steps out, perhaps with presumption and the hope, that God would use him. Somebody's got to do something, and he was determined that he was going to do something, so he took his armour bearer. They left the army of Israel. The guards weren't highly active. Somehow they slipped out. Nobody knew they had gone. He says, let's go up to that outpost over there, about 20 men in it, and let's fight them. Will we win? Who knows? But either way, we're going to fight them. We're going to do something. He says in verse 6, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Perhaps. 
So God hadn't said, go and I will be with you. It's perhaps. Maybe God will turn up. Maybe God will join us in this endeavour. And as he gets to this um, pass, between the two armies there's a ravine, or two large cliffs, a significant physical uh, phenomenon that was well known in Israel because they even have names. You have a look in verse 5. One is called the Bozes and one is called Senna, however you pronounce those words. One means shining, one means thorny. Shining probably because the sun shone on it. You know, it faced the south and it got the full brunt of the sun. The other side, more in the shadow or the darkness, it had thorns and more difficult to climb up. Nonetheless, they come to that impasse. They look up and they see the garrison up on top. And Jonathan's got a test, verse 8. He says, um, let's ask them, let's expose ourselves, let's show them that we're coming. And then if they say to us, wait where you are and we'll come to you, then we'll wait here. We'll wait in the valley and we'll fight them here. Either way, I'm going to fight. I'll fight them here. But if they say, come on up, we've got a lesson to teach you, then that'll be a clue. That'll be God is encouraging us because God is giving them into our hands. That's what his belief. He sort of puts out this little sign, this little, well, if they say that, we'll fight them down here. But if they say this, that's God. God's opened the door for us to go. Um, I'm not sure that's a wise thing to do. It's not a great way to derive guidance from the scriptures from this passage. I think it's maybe a bit of a warning. The commendable thing is, Jonathan is passionate for God's honour. He's determined to do something. He's not sure what. So he's going to do what he has done before and done successfully. God enabled that. Perhaps God would likewise use him in this instance. There were two swords in Israel. Jonathan had one. Saul had one. Saul is in its sheath. He's sitting under a tree, contemplating, waiting, doing nothing with what God had given him. Uh, Jonathan is Saul, that was. Jonathan is out. He's got his sword out. And he's ready to use what God has resourced or given him to use. So off he goes with his armour bearer, loyal to Jonathan. And when they climb up, as we read in the passage, and suddenly it becomes very clear that Jonathan is an effective warrior. He's got to do something for God. He steps up and because he stood, stepped out in faith, in many ways, trusting and hoping in God, he is successful. Next slide. He triumphs. Maybe God would help. God does help. God turns up and delivers him. So much so, verse 23, we are told, so the Lord rescued Israel that day. God did it. He used Jonathan. He was simply an instrument in the hands of God to achieve something in God's purposes. His faith was bold, it took a risk, and it was successful. He triumphed. Now, not only that, also his faith influenced the others. It goes on to show us that Jonathan motivated other people to come and join in the fray. In verse 15, we are told that the result of this incursion into this Philistine outpost is that the Philistines, the 20 of them, get killed. And with that little outpost being destroyed, suddenly in the army of the Philistines, in the camp, in the outposts, and in the fields, wherever they were, there was this sudden change of heart. They suddenly became fearful. They suddenly became concerned. They panic, it says. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp, in the field, those in the outpost and the raiding parties. And then to add to the panic, God sent an earthquake. 
I've never been in a significant I've been in one little earthquake and I can still remember it years later but I would imagine if you've been in an earthquake like this where the ground shakes it's traumatising it's fearful well the timing of it is remarkable isn't it that's God it was a panic sent by God for the text note it was a terrible panic the Philistines suddenly are incredibly circumstances have changed their perspective has changed God did something so these two truths come for us circumstances do not determine outcomes when God is involved whatever the circumstances of your life it is not guaranteed or inevitable that those circumstances will work their ways out there is a God in heaven who is sovereign who can change circumstances who can turn things around there are only two swords in Israel but God was capable of using one of them and then turning the swords of the Philistines against each other God is incredible, he's almighty, he's all powerful nothing can hinder him from achieving his purposes in your life uh, to bring your circumstances bring your situation before him and submit it before him and ask him to work out his purposes, we like Jonathan need to offer ourselves to God's services make ourselves available like Jonathan, look back and understand God's revelation, what is God's mission, what is God's purpose what does he want us to be doing well we understand that from the Bible that God is about renewing the earth, saving people, bringing them into a relationship with the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, through the gospel, through the good news of what Jesus has done by his death and resurrection. God is transforming people's lives personally. But his desire is also to transform communities and eventually to transform the whole world. There will be a new heavens and a new earth one day. We are moving towards that end. Let us observe and join forces with God in what he is doing now keep our eyes open to the opportunities around us this week like Jonathan, take a risk take a bold step, trust God I'm going to step up and step out and do something that God wants me to do 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9 is a great verse, it says that the Apostle Paul I think in Ephesus uh, says that God has opened a door with many opportunities for ministry God has opened the door but there are also many who oppose it often the way we live in enemy territory the enemy is often always looks bigger than us looks more powerful than us looks smarter than us but we have God on our side outward circumstances do not determine the outcome God does we need to join hands with him as he seeks to work his purposes out in the world what Jonathan said in verse 6 proves to be the case Let's go over to this outpost of these uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf, and he does. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. God can work his purposes out, and he will. And he wants to use us in the process. He wanted to use Saul. But Saul devalued his word, didn't follow it completely, delayed obedience to it, and then eventually when he should have been waiting, he acted. Now, when he should be acting, he's waiting. He's sort of out of step. And verse 2 of chapter 14 even gives us a bit of a clue, verse 2 and 3, that now, having failed badly in chapter 13 spiritually, having disobeyed what God wanted him to do, now he's trying to be religious. Now at least he's got a priest with him. But the bad news is the priest that he's got with him, a hijack, the guy who was wearing the ephod, the guy, the ephod has the stones in it, the Urim and Thummim, the help determine God's will he's a descendant 
of Phineas, you know, Eli's line. Eli, uh, Eli Phineas, and then his son, uh, Ahitab, is here, and then this guy, Ahijah. He's in the line of those who had been rejected, had been set aside. Saul is listening to a priest, but it's the priest who was out of step with God. Saul is tapping into potentially the wrong resources. Well, if you have a look at verse 23 and 24, it sort of divides the chapter in half. One is referring to what we've just done, verse 23. So the Lord rescued Israel that day, and he did, through Jonathan. Through Jonathan stepping up in faith with a bold faith, going forward, God meeting him, encouraging him, using him, and using that to motivate others to get on with the job. The Lord rescued Israel. Verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day. That's because of Saul. The men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath. He said, Cursed be any man who eats food before evening comes, before I avenge myself on my enemies. Saul is seemingly ego-driven, self-centred. It's my enemy, not our enemy. Not the enemies of Israel, not the enemies of the Lord God who are dishonouring him. It's my enemy. And Saul makes a foolish decision. He says to his soldiers, I don't want you to eat anything before evening comes. I want you to chase these Philistine soldiers and I want you to not touch anything. Now it's possible, very unlikely I think, but it's possible what Saul may have meant, if you put a really good positive twist on it, is he was, soldiers in those days were, when you're involved in the army, you're entitled to the plunder. So if there was gold or food or whatever, you could take it. It was yours. And maybe what Saul is meaning to say is that you soldiers that go and fight, don't be distracted by rewarding yourself. Get on with the job. Destroy the Philistine invaders and remove them as far as we can. Maybe that's what he meant. If he did, then that would be commendable. That would be a focused attempt. But just the way that it's written. Don't want anybody to touch any food before evening because until I have avenged myself on my enemies, I think what's going on is Saul, again, being a little bit religious. Let's have a fast, which is the exact opposite of what a soldier needs. You're going to be involved in running, I don't know, 20 miles or whatever it is. It turns out to be that long for them. You're going to be expending energy in a battle. And one of the things you're going to have to do is to nourish yourself, to replenish your supplies. And Saul makes a foolish decision. He gets all the army to agree on oath that they will not, on the pain of a curse, eat anything. A foolish decision. And so enough, the soldiers, either out of respect for Saul or whatever, they don't. They obey him. But Jonathan, who had left the camp beforehand and was not aware of this, in the pursuit, the chase, they come to a forest. And in the midst of the forest, they find honey dripping from the honeycomb. You have a look at verse 26 and following it. When they went into the woods... They saw honey oozing out. The soldiers' tongues would have been hanging out. Verse 27, But Jonathan had not heard that his father had bound the people with an oath. So he took his spear, he dipped it into the honey, took his hand, took it off the end of the spear, and he ate it, and he was immediately nourished, immediately refreshed. His eyes brightened, it says, um, in verse 27. And then one of the soldiers told him, Your father bound the army under a strict oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats today. That's why the men are faint. Your father said do this, we're obeying it. 
result is worth saying. Jonathan says, verse 29, My father has made trouble for Israel, for the country. My father made a foolish decision. He has troubled Israel. That word, troubled Israel, is the same word, same expression which is used in another chapter, back in Joshua, chapter 7, where a man by the name of Achan had disobeyed God's instructions that when you go into the city of Jericho, you are not to take anything. It's to be completely under the ban. It's to be completely destroyed and devoted to God. Every man, every woman, every child, every animal, every product, gold, silver, clothes, a whole lot, everything is to be destroyed. Totally offered up to God. And Achan goes in, sees some gold and some garments and takes them and hides them. And chapter 7 where he's found out the word is described that Achan had troubled Israel. One man's decision, one man's sin had withdrawn the blessing of God from the whole nation. Israel lost the next battle because he had been disobedient. That's what Saul had done. Now Saul has troubled Israel. His decision to have this oath has deprived Israel of the victory that they could have had. But the blessing was greatly reduced. You read on in the passage, verse 30. How much better it would have been if the man had eaten today, Jonathan says, and took some of the plunder from the enemy. Would not the slaughter of the Philistines have been even greater? Saul, out of step with God, makes a foolish decision. Ask the men to make a foolish oath under the pretense perhaps of a fast, a religious thing, again this veneer of religiosity. But the consequences to it are drastic. The men are exhausted. The Philistines are not pursued as strongly. And then when evening comes, which is when the curse would have been lifted, curse be any man who eats food before evening, when evening comes, the men are desperate. They do something wrong. They take the sheep, the goats, the cattle, whatever, and they kill them but it says they didn't let the blood drain from them. Verse 32, they pounced on the plunder, taking sheep, cattle, calves. They butchered them on the ground and ate them together with the blood. And someone tells Saul, look, the men are sinning against the Lord by eating meat that's got blood in it. Leviticus 17. Um, and Saul says, you have broken faith. You've done wrong. And they had. Saul at least is lining up this time with God's instruction. And then he says, roll a large stone over here at once. And they do so. And then he commands the men to bring their animals and to slaughter them in a fashion so the blood is drained from them before they go and cook it, before they go and barbecue it. Don't sin against the Lord by eating meat with blood still in it. And everyone does that. He gets that right. And the first slight indication to Saul that, man, the decision I made, the oath I gave, wasn't smart wasn't helpful for what God wanted to do. It's not an excuse, but it, le- it has led to the men behaving inappropriately. Then Saul comes up with a brilliant idea. <clears throat> well, he builds an altar. That's the first time he builds an altar. Again, you see, being religious. It's not wrong for him to build an altar. David will build an altar in his time as well. It could be a commendable thing, or it could be a veneer, a religious act. And Saul comes up with a brilliant idea. Says to the men, let's, after you've finished eating, let's go night time and attack the Philistines again. Let's chase them all night until morning. 
the men are exhausted, they need time to recover. Nobody's prepared to say to Saul, that's a dumb idea. But at least the priest comes to him and says, perhaps we should ask God what he thinks. So the priest brings the ephod and has two stones in here and a pouch in here. Uh, We don't fully understand how the Urim and the Thurman work. There are many different ideas and options, whether it was two different colours or it had two different words on it. Or if they took them out and rolled it like dice, and, you know, depending on the way it turned up, if they were both the same, it's a yes. If they were opposites, then, you know, if they were both white, it's yes. Both black, it's no. If it's black and white, then it's neutral. We don't know. All we do know is that God gave and allowed these stones, like lots, to be used, and his will would be revealed through it. So the priest does that, comes and Saul asks the questions, should we attack or shouldn't we? Will you give us success or not? And there's no answer. Publicly. Saul is maybe embarrassed, humiliated. God's not talking to him. God's not revealing his will to him. So then Saul, in desperation, why isn't God speaking? Someone has sinned. Someone has done something wrong. So he has all the army soldiers officers stand over here and he has Jonathan and his himself stand over here he obviously clearly thinks it's one of them it wouldn't be Jonathan, it's not me and then lots are drawn and the lot falls on them and then Saul with the public display of religiosity says well do it again and find out if it's Jonathan or if it's me that has done the wrong thing and the lot falls to Jonathan Jonathan what have you done wrong? he said I ate some honey when you said not to and I'm prepared to die. Saul says, stupid statement, foolish statement, you will certainly die. May the Lord do to me more so if you are not dead by the end of today. What a foolish thing to say. Jonathan had not sinned against the Lord. Jonathan had broken his dad's standard, his own idea. And it was going to be the death penalty. That's foolishness. A man out of step with God, imposing his own extra standard upon God's people the people then step forward and they say Jonathan has been the one blessed by God today, Jonathan has been the one that God has used today so there is no way that our hero Jonathan is going to be killed Jonathan is proving to be a better king a better leader than Saul but Jonathan would never be king but it is preparing the way that he will align himself with the next king, with David to achieving God's purpose Saul's foolish statement. What should he have done? Next slide. His foolishness has been exposed. Like I said way back in the beginning, Saul was flawed and imperfect. So was David. So was Judas and Peter. So there's something interesting about that combination of names. Uh, Judas and Peter both betrayed or denied the Lord Jesus on the same night. And one repents, the other one doesn't. Saul and David both made mistakes. One repents, one doesn't. David and Peter, flawed creatures, who when they are caught out, when they are convicted, they come back before God, they admit their sin, they confess their sin, they ask God to forgive them and they repent. They change their ways. That's the response that God looks for in us. But Saul and Judas, when they did something wrong, they don't humble themselves. They don't confess. They don't repent. They rationalise or excuse. That's not the response that God looks for in us. 
Psalm 25, verse 4, Psalm of David, indicates his heart and our heart as well. Through this chapter, we are to know God, to pursue him and his ways. The psalmist, David says, Psalm 25, Show me your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Saviour. Remember, O Lord, your great mercy and love. Remember not the sins of my youth or my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good. Show me your ways, O Lord. Lord, what is it you want me to do? I'm prepared to do anything. Jonathan was. Saw an opportunity, drew a conclusion, stepped forward. Was God in it? Wasn't sure. But I'm going to have a go. You know, it's much easier to steer a moving vehicle than a stationary one. So what we need to do is to be moving, following God as best we can, attempting great things for God, expecting great things from God, moving out in action, not sitting under a tree, contemplating and waiting for God to say to us what he's already said to us. God is expecting us to walk in obedience to his revelation. There are two ways to live. As I said before, we cannot choose when or where or how we will die. We will die. But we can choose each day how we will live. Jonathan chooses to live under the sovereign rule of God, attempting to trust him and to do what is in line with his word, moving in obedience. Saul is a person who says the right thing, does the religious act, but is not prepared to move under God's kingship, under God's rule. He's more interested in doing things so that he gets noticed, he gets the glory. He was far more concerned about his own reputation than he was about God's reputation. Saul and Jonathan contrasted. So too we must choose each day how we will live. Outward circumstances do not determine outcomes when God is involved. We need to offer ourselves to God like Jonathan did and trust God to work through us. We need to take warnings from Saul, whom I expect was a believer, but who just got it wrong, made decisions, wasn't fully obedient, came out with, because of his own ego, foolish oaths, foolish statements, foolish penalties, and will eventually be removed from his kingship. So, your choice. Live each day for God, doing great exploits for him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a God who is at work in the world. Help us to observe that and to join you in what you are doing. Lord, deliver us from being being overwhelmed by circumstances or situations, but to look to you, that you are the sovereign God, working your purposes out. You are the God who can change circumstances. What you look for in us, Lord, is for people who are trusting and believing. That when we're going astray, to repent, to humble ourselves and to ask again for your mercy and forgiveness, for your empowering for us to be obedient. Lord, in the days of this week, open our eyes to see the opportunities of what you're doing. Help us to step up and to be involved, to do things for you that your kingdom may advance that Jesus' name might be honoured and that people might come to faith in him. Lord, we, like Jonathan, want to place ourselves in your hands as your instruments. Use us to bring honour 
to yourself. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.